Greetings and welcome to another edition of the AMSSM Sports MedCast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. J.W. Thomas Bird of the Nashville Hip Institute, Nashville, Tennessee. I'd also like to acknowledge the BJSM for their help in the production of this episode. Dr. Bird, thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here. I'd like to just start off uh, by discussing the topic of FAI or femoroacetabular impingement. Uh, Could you just give us kind of the general definition of FAI? You bet. Well, FAI is really just a 50-cent word for the way that most people's hips are formed or, or people who have trouble with the way their hips are formed when they're little, probably around age 10 or 11. Uh, the two types that we see are pincer type and a cam type, and then the third is a combined type. And the pincer type is on the acetabular side where the, there's a bony prominence coming off the anterior rim of the acetabulum that can crush the labrum and cause the labrum to start to fail. The cam type is just where the femoral head's out of round and creates a bump on the anterior part of the femoral head, and with hip flexion, that bump can glide underneath the labrum and engage the articular surface and start to cause damage to the articular cartilage. All right, fantastic. Uh, So one of the kind of dilemmas for myself as a primary care sports medicine physician is how to kind of treat the range of presentations of this condition. So obviously there are those we find radiographically kind of an incidentaloma uh, where they have the morphology but probably no symptoms whatsoever all the way to the you know, person with advanced disease and significant arthritis already, that there's probably not a whole lot we can do for them surgically at that point in time. When would you like to see these referrals coming to you, and how much should we be optimizing kind of conservative management, injections, things along those lines, versus sending them to you for early intervention when you may be able to do some more good? Boy, you've really made several questions that illustrate the spectrum of the problem that we encounter. Uh, and as you alluded to, you can certainly have impingement morphology without necessarily having impingement pathology, meaning there's a lot of folks with all kinds of radiographic abnormalities that have long active lives and never, ever get into trouble. Once things start to break down, that's where intervention is probably appropriate, and intervention does not always mean surgery. There's a number of things you can do from a non-surgical standpoint to help reduce the forces across the joint. That's where physical therapy can be very helpful You think of this being a bony architectural problem, and what's physical therapy going to do? Well, there's a significant dynamic component. There's a lot you can do with pelvic stabilization to reorient the acetabulum, take the forces off the joint. But most times, once somebody truly becomes symptomatic associated with damage inside the joint, most times it's a matter of what can you do to modulate the symptoms. But at some point, there's probably heading down the road towards contemplating the role of arthroscopic surgery or some type of surgical intervention to address this. All right. Could you talk to us about the orthopedic options in terms of treating these conditions and the differentials between the two types? Well, and and as far as the, the two types and really the three types since there's a combined type, most times the exam findings are not really specific for one versus the other, but the imaging can help you to determine how much of a pincer type, how much of a cam type, how much of a combined type. But really those features become important when you're starting to contemplate the role of surgical intervention. As far as if you're just dealing with an athlete, the main thing you want to try to identify, are they having hip joint pain? And that is not always obvious. And if they are having hip joint pain, could FAI have a role in what's causing damage inside the joint? 
because it's only once the labrum and possibly the articular cartilage starts to break down, that's when they become symptomatic. Because when you see a 25-year-old who's developing symptoms and they have radiographic features of FAI, they've had those radiographic features since they were a young child, but it's only as the cartilage starts to break down that they start to become symptomatic. And pain is the body's alarm system. And when the alarm's going off, you really want to know what's setting off the alarm. Is it something that you worry about with neglect can create more consequences down the road? Or is it something that just requires more symptomatic treatment, such as if there's a hip flexor strain or groin strain? And certainly for every problem with FAI, there are probably many, many hip flexor strains and things of that nature. So you want to be a little careful not to look too deeply every time somebody shows up with recent onset of hip symptoms. Absolutely. I assume the majority of these are probably found initially on plain films, but obviously we generally go to advanced imaging before sending them to you. What type of advanced imaging do you prefer? Do you prefer just MRI without contrast? Do you prefer contrasted studies so you can look at that labrum more? Or we've talked about three-t, uh, three-dimensional CT scans. How, how would you prefer to have these patients show up in your clinic? Well, in general, you can't emphasize enough the importance of the plain x-rays uh, from an imaging standpoint. And certainly before we speak about imaging, just like anything, we know that our history and our physical examination are the most powerful clinical assessment tools. As you talk to athletes and speak to individuals, you can sort of get a sense of whether the hip joint is where the problem is coming from or not. But And rather than go into great detail in history and exam, I think the, the most uh, quoted exam finding is the impingement test, where you flex, adduct, and internally rotate the hip in a forceful fashion, which creates hip joint type symptoms. And that's commonly referred to in, in conjunction with femoris tabular impingement. Really, the impingement test is not specific for impingement because virtually any irritable hip, whether it's just inflammation or cartilage damage or impingement, is going to be painful when you flex and internally rotate it. As far as the imaging, again, the x-rays are, are the most important investigative tools. It's interesting where you have people come to you with all kinds of sophisticated imagery but they've either never had x-rays or it's been a long time since they've had plain x-rays. For me, a good quality conventional MRI is adequate. It's very rare that we ever do any contrasted images. One of the dilemmas about contrasted images where they inject contrast inside the joint is that oftentimes there's subtle findings such as soft tissue inflammation, uh, bony inflammation, or especially if there's a little bit of an effusion, because a little bit of an effusion in a hip joint tells her that joint is really unhappy. And when they inject contrast, you lose the ability to interpret that. So for me, a good quality high-resolution MRI is adequate. Uh, that has to be at least a 1.5 Tesla magnet. Smaller magnets uh, have a more difficult time. Three Tesla magnets are probably good for really big people, but for most folks, a good quality 1.5 Tesla magnet is adequate. All right. Those are some great pearls. I thank you for that. I know we're starting to see this in younger and younger patients, uh, some as early as their early adolescence. When do you start looking at potentially intervening if you think this is going to be problematic, and what type of data do we have at this point in the long-term outcomes for those younger patients? And, and we'll back up for a second, and again, uh, FAI is the consequence of the way the hip is formed in childhood. So regardless of the age at which they develop the symptoms or the suddenness of the onset of symptoms, remember that's just the, the accumulation of, of a process that's been building up since childhood. Uh, so when they become symptomatic, I don't think there's any sense of urgency to rush in and do something. 
because uh, again, it's been building up for a while. And the dilemma is that oftentimes these athletes have been compensating for their hip long before their hip ever started to bother them and long before they realized there was a hip joint problem. Often when they show up to see you, they present with the compensatory problems, whether it's athletic pubalgia type symptoms, whether they have limited range of motion in their hip, which puts more stress on their back, they show up with back symptoms. Probably even going so far as to say that some of the pelvic floor problems we see may directly or indirectly be associated with hip joint problems. So oftentimes by the time they show up, they're very complex layers. As I tell people, it's a good day when somebody comes to see me and all they have is an isolated intraarticular joint problem. Most times there are other layers going on and that's where the physical therapist can really be a, an incredibly valuable and important teammate. The therapists are very adept at, at sort of sorting out these layers that are going on and identifying some of the extra-articular problems, identifying those, and also establishing a plan on how to address those. Because if you can address the compensatory problems, oftentimes you go a long ways towards regaining their ability to compensate. And at the very least, it puts them in a much better position if it comes to thinking about surgery, if you've addressed those on the front end. Okay, fantastic. Another condition that we see early on in life, obviously, is hip dysplasia. So obviously opposite end of the spectrum, but kind of thinking about hip dysplasia and can you discuss that topic and kind of some of the options we have in terms of treatment and therapy for that as well? You bet. We tend to think about impingement and dysplasia existing on two ends of the spectrum, but actually they can oftentimes overlap because you may have somebody who has a little bit of a shallow socket but their acetabulum is retroverted, meaning that rather than sort of facing forward or tilting forward like they normally do, it may tend to tilt back. So there's extra bone covering the front of the acetabulum at the same time that the acetabulum may be a little bit shallow. Those are, are, are particularly a challenge as we try to decipher, is this more of a dysplasia problem or is this an impingement problem? Because the vast majority of all impingement problems, if it comes to surgical intervention, those can be addressed arthroscopically. You can reshape the bone, you can correct the impingement, you can repair the labrum, uh, you can address the articular cartilage, which is the wild card in all this, and we can come back to that if you like. But dysplasia is the one condition that you cannot correct with arthroscopic surgery. If somebody has significant dysplasia to the point that it's causing secondary damage to their joint, the only surgical correction for dysplasia is what's called a PAO or periacetabular osteotomy, which is an open operation to reorient the, the acetabulum and deepen the socket. Again, that's a big op open operation, and nobody ever comes to see me that wants to have an open operation. They all would much prefer to have an arthroscopic procedure. But for that particular condition, arthroscopic surgery is not really an option. You may reduce their discomfort, improve the quality of their life, buy them some time while their hip continues to deteriorate because of the unaddressed underlying dysplasia. So for those circumstances, it's important to recognize it. And if, they com if it comes to any operation, you want to get the right operation first. In sports, dysplasia oftentimes is associated with people who have extreme mobility of the hip. So for activities in sports where extreme flexibility is a premium, such as gymnastics, ballet, figure skating, dance, uh, that's why we oftentimes see people with dysplasia in those particular activities because that extreme flexibility is an asset right up until the point that things start to break down. 
people with severe impingement don't make good dancers, they don't make good gymnasts, so you don't see as much impingement trouble in those particular populations. You did mention the articular cartilage uh, and said we could circle back. I'd love to do so. Uh, that's one of the areas where I feel hopeless when there's significant articular cartilage damage at that point. What do we have that we can offer those patients? Well, welcome to the club on your sense of hopelessness with articular damage, because in orthopedics, that's really the holy grail. If you could figure out a reliable solution to articular loss, uh, you'd probably get a Nobel Prize. Because really confuse things completely in the hip, there's two kinds of cartilage. There's the labrum cartilage, which is like an O-ring or a gasket seal around the socket. The articular cartilage lines the socket and lines the femoral head. It's like a thick Teflon coating that creates a smooth, frictionless surface. As the articular cartilage starts to break down, that's the beginnings of arthritis. And arthritis is not a word we like to use in teenagers and people in their 20s. MRIs are pretty good at showing damage to the labrum, but really they're no good at all at showing how much damage there may be to the articular cartilage. So if it comes to arthroscopic surgery to address impingement, the wild card is how much damage there may be to the articular cartilage. Now when you look in there, you're going to see exactly what's damaged and what's not. But the reason for the surgery isn't to look around. The reason for the surgery is if you're at least pretty sure that you could actually do something to help them. The labrum is almost always repairable. If the articular cartilage is roughened, you can smooth it down. If some of that cartilage is broken down to raw bone, that's where we'll do a microfracture to stimulate a fibrocartilaginous healing response. And I always tell the trainers, I've never met a trainer who doesn't cringe when you mention the word microfracture in the athlete. I'm always quick to point out to people that microfracture is not a bad operation, but it's an operation that you're doing for a very difficult problem. Absolutely. Let's discuss some of the typical errors in early treatment or things that you see us doing as primary care managers that we could probably do better a little bit before we send our patients to you. Well, I think, first of all, we have to be a little cautious about casting any disparaging remarks because FAI problems are an enigma, and there's a good study that shows that a young adult with a non-arthritic hip problem, I mean, they don't have obvious arthritis where they need a hip replacement, sees an average of 4.2 healthcare providers before a diagnosis of impingement is made. So oftentimes they're elusive. When I see patients, oftentimes they've seen several folks before, they've got a sense of frustration that, you know, now I've got this labral tear and I've got FAI. Why didn't the other three people I saw uh, make this diagnosis? Because, uh, again, oftentimes it's elusive, and if you go do an extensive workup on everybody that shows up with groin symptoms, you may be looking too closely at people doing a lot of unnecessary studies, but also keeping in mind that there are many people who have radiographic features of FAI who have no damage at all. All right. And any other parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners, any key points that you'd like to address? I, I think probably the one group that I would like to mention would be the, the teenagers, the adolescents, the high school athletes, because uh, as, as we see these people getting into trouble with, with FAI, one of the things that we've identified is as we looked at our adolescents with FAI, virtually all of them are involved in athletics. You do not get into trouble with FAI at a young age unless you're involved in athletics. About 96% of the adolescents with FAI are involved in sports. Uh, that's compared to about 61% in an adult population. And the reason that observation is important is because as you're dealing with the athletes and dealing with the parents, the problem they're up against has nothing to do with sports. It just has to do with the way their hips are formed. 
being an athlete may have brought it to head at a younger age, but this was something that was going to catch up with them at some point in the future. And that's important because the treatment is not about return to sports. The treatment is about a youngster who has a lot of years ahead of them trying to make sure that we're giving them the best hip that we can for many years to come. One of the concerns is as you see somebody with symptoms and you've identified that they have FAI, especially if the MRI report comes back and says they have a labral tear and you're treating that youngster or even an, an adult and you're worrying, ooh, you know, am I harming this person by sitting on them? Should I send them right away for surgery? Well, the best I can tell somebody is it's unlikely that there's something in the hip that's going to get worse and them not know it. If the symptoms are stable, I don't think there's a sense of urgency to rush in and do something. Uh, surgery is not always the only option of what to do. There's a number of things you can try from a non-surgical standpoint, especially with rehab. Uh, if the symptoms are getting worse, then my advice is it's probably better to be proactive and address it rather than say, well, wait until it gets so bad that you really can't compete in sports anymore. The other end of the spectrum would be the professional athlete. Uh, and and I, I think that anytime you start treating somebody special, whether it's high-level athletes or your best friends or famous people or your family, you really have to step back and say, okay, why am I doing something different than what I consider to be the standard and the norm of care? And there is a difference in professional athletes. They certainly have more resources available to them to rehab and do anything else that they may want to do. Uh, they're highly motivated. But the big difference is a lot of times for the professional athletes, it's an economic decision because they've got evidence of damage. Uh, would they try to play or should they have surgery? Oftentimes they have a certain window of time or a certain number of years where they've got an opportunity to make a lot of money, and that's an opportunity that won't be available to them down the road. So sometimes... There's an economic decision for them as far as how you're going to manage them. If they're having symptoms, trying to get them through the season, do something after the season. If they've got a couple of years in their career left, do they really want to have surgery? Would they rather try to play a couple more years? Those are all uh, very much individual decisions because as I tell people, we'll talk about the options and you can do this and you can do that, but at some point I'll tell you what I recommend. But keep in mind that what I recommend is largely influenced by me interpreting what I'm hearing from you, and the treatment for each person may be different. It's not a cookbook formula where everybody gets the same recommendation. Absolutely. That's a, a great approach to take to every patient, regardless of age, all the way from adolescence through our geriatric patients. Well, Dr. Bird, I'd like to sincerely thank you for your time. This was fantastic, and I'm sure our listeners very much enjoyed it. Well, Devin, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for sharing your time with us, and I hope you found this time valuable. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the AMSSM, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.